and perhaps this goes without saying, was a difficult one. No one would dispute that. In fact, there were those who cursed 2020, almost personalizing it as it passed into 2021. 2020 will be remembered as a year of restrictions in all our memories, many inconveniences and challenges, loneliness and longing because we were not allowed to socialize and fellowship and visit as we love to. 2020 will be remembered as a year of many inconveniences and changes and loneliness, fear and fear-mongering, hopes lifted and hopes dashed. And so, you know, in a sense, we can understand the frustrations of many. But of course, as Christians, we ought to be seeing things differently. For one thing, we believe, in contrast to the world, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is in control of all things, that nothing happens by chance. We believe that this COVID virus does not cause him stress because he is the king who knows all and is in control of all. And that he knows all things from beginning to the end. And he knows how long this business will continue. But we also know something else that should encourage us at this time of the year. Something our text reminds us of. That not merely is 2020 passing behind us. This world itself is passing away. Chronologically, we have moved forward in history another year, which is the way it's been for thousands of years. But we know from the Bible that this will not go on forever. We know that the world is moving to an appointed end. One day the Lord Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, will return on the clouds of heaven with His archangels at the blast of the trumpet and this world as we know it, with all its vain teachings and philosophies will come to a screeching halt. John reminds God's people of this in this letter and as in the time when it was written, we still need to hear this today with a great sense of urgency. We need this reminder. John wrote this letter, of course, in the original context because there were certain false teachers that were infiltrating, making their way into the churches of Jesus Christ, sadly, even while the apostles were still alive. And they were bringing in all kinds of false teachings. And in particular, one of the kinds of teachings that they were encouraging was a, a kind of worldliness that were enslaving people again, even the people of God. And John writes this letter to address this kind of worldliness that was being taught or accepted in the churches that even caused Christians, otherwise professing Christians, to walk in darkness. He mentioned in chapter 1, verse 6. Some of them were saying that they had no sin. Some of them were saying that they had not sinned. They were saying that we don't need to keep God's commandments anymore. Some of them, as we heard in chapter 2, verse 9, were even hating their brothers in the Lord. And John writes to correct them and to correct us, and to remind us that there is only one way, there is only one path, there is only one choice for us. We must love Christ, and we must walk in obedience before Him. And if we don't, John says in this letter that we are actually deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. He writes in chapter 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are very serious words that we have to take to heart once again today. 
There are no two ways about it. Our hearts cannot be divided nor sheared. We either love the Lord and obey His commands, or we love the world, which reveals that the Lord does not live in us. And so we want to remember these things so that we may keep things in perspective even as we prepare ourselves for the challenges that this new year may bring. That this world is passing away and the day of Christ is one year closer. And let us recommit our lives to Him who loves us and calls us to be His own. Our theme this morning as we look at 1 John 2 verse 17 is this. Christ calls his children to continue in obedience. Christ calls his children to continue in obedience. We'll see that we do this, first of all, because of the world's impermanence. And we'll see what that means in a second. And secondly, because of the permanent effects of our obedience. But as Christ calls us, his children, to continue in obedience, we want to see in the first place that we're to do so because of the world's Impermanence. Now, impermanence, boys and girls, is one of those big words. We wonder what that means. It's just a big word that means it's going away. It's not permanent. Okay? We know the difference between a permanent marker and a washable marker, right? Washable is, is impermanent, can clean up easy. We know that if we happen to write on mom's table with a permanent marker, uh, that's one of those moments when we see that little vein popping out of, the, of our forehead. We know we're in serious trouble with that, right? Because we're writing on something that can't be cleaned very easily. It's permanent. Washable, washable markers are impermanent. They clean up easy. But when we speak of the world as being impermanent, we mean that the world is not going to stay. It's temporary. It's passing by. It's passing away. It's not forever. The sense of the Greek is of a continuous progression. The world is in the process of passing us by. Kind of if you've gone to a parade and you've seen a float come down the road and it passes you by and it goes down the road until it disappears in the distance or turns the corner, we don't see it anymore. That's what's happening with the world. The world is not going to be here forever. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Only God's word remains forever. But we have to ask, what does John mean when he speaks of the world here? Well, the word world in the Bible, and especially in the writings of John, can have different meanings depending on the context in which they're written. When John uses the word world sometimes, sometimes he, cre he refers to the created world. That is the world around us. The world that we see as we step outside these doors and we look around the earth. As in John 1 verse 10 where he says of the world that it was made through Jesus. He's talking here of the created world. Or sometimes when John uses the word world, he refers to the human race. All the human beings ever, uh, that have lived on this earth will ever live in the earth. As in John 3.16 where we hear him say that God the Father so loved the world... That is, humankind, that he gave his only son to save us from perishing. Well, here in this passage, as in other places, John and Paul does this as well. Peter does as well. Uh, John uses word, world here to mean anything that opposes God and his Christ. Anything that opposes God and his Christ. World here refers to fallen and corrupt humanity. 
The ones who worship the creation and not its creator. Whose desires are anchored in earthly pleasures. Paul speaks in Galatians 1 verse 4 of this present evil age. Same sense here. John speaks in chapter 5 verse 19 of the world being under the sway. That is under the influence, under the control of the evil one. That's the sense in which he uses the word world here. Fallen mankind in rebellion against God and under Satan's rule is now dominated by false loves, false values, false knowledge. And apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the world is really spiritually dead. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 7, in fact, that the carnal mind is enmity against God. That is the fleshly unregenerate mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Or Jesus pronounced the condemnation of the world when he said that even though light had come into the world, that is in his incarnation, he had come in the flesh, light had come into the world, but men loved darkness. And you see, that tells you something about humankind. By nature, men, unregenerate man, is quite content to remain in darkness. The darkness of self-indulgence, immorality, hatred, slander, anger, greed. Man is born into this world carrying these sins inside of him, and he's quite content to remain in that state. The world as well is dangerous because it is full of deadly sneers disguised as treasures that we must have, even to us as God's people. Pleasures they display before us that we feel we must try, urging us to crave the praise and approval of men, urging us to build towers for our own glory, to love its toys, its technology, its mammon, And the world, you see, has its ways of tantalizing us, even we covenant people. The world has its ways of tantalizing us with its use of forbidden fruit. And they seem to defy God and get away with it. To the point where you think, well, why am I even a Christian? Why do I make the sacrifice to go to church every Sunday and try to be a good uh, person and obey the commandments of God when the world is doing all of this and they seem to be getting away with it? Even have fun doing it, it seems. John gives perhaps the best summary of what the world produces in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the Greek word translated desires here, sometimes it's translated lusts, strong passion, refers to a strong longing, but especially for what is forbidden. Same thing like in the Garden of Eden. The word desire here describes man's inner striving, that pull inside of us. It speaks of the sinful urges that live in us, moving us to do the things that please ourselves. The Apostle James explains it this way. In his letter, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, 
gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so we are born with these sinful desires in us. And, and that's not to say that there are not good desires in us. There are good and legitimate desires that we, we have. A young man may grow up, and his desire is to find a good Christian girl who puts the Lord Jesus Christ first in her life, and to get married, and to have children for the Lord, to build his kingdom. We might have the desire or the ambition to be able to provide for our families well, to give our children food, clothes, and shelter, the things they need. We may have a good and very legitimate desire to grow in our faith, to know the scriptures, to be a faithful member of God's church. But there are sinful desires as well. And, and sinful desires can find their expression in many areas. Sexual desires, desires for money, there's even a sinful desire to get ahead that James calls selfish ambition. That's when you put your faith life, your church, your family, second place, third, fourth maybe, to, to your getting ahead and to your building your bank account and somehow making, your felt, making yourself feel like, like somebody or at least that you're better than others. Titus 3 verse 3 indicates that before conversion, we actually serve Various lusts and pleasures. Isn't that scary to think of? We actually serve various lusts and pleasures. This is telling us that sinful desires can have us so completely under their control that we can cater to them like slaves to their master. John speaks here of the desires of the flesh. And by this he means the sinful longings that spring from the sinful nature and seek gratification. And we see this, for instance, in our, uh, in the, the, in our society, in the so-called hookup culture of our day. The ongoing and increasing demand, it seems, for abortion rights. The greed, the gluttony, the addictions in its many forms. We've just come through the Christmas season where businesses have once again made a killing because people must have. We have to have it. One store's slogan, I want that, speaks volumes of the attitude of this age, the materialism. And then John speaks of the desires or the lusts of the eyes. And this refers to the simple yet dangerous act of coveting. You know, our eyes are wonderful instruments, aren't they, if you think about it? With these eyes, we can gaze upon the most beautiful things on this earth. We can gaze upon a majestic mountain. We can look at our children, our grandchildren. We can stare into the eyes of our own spouse. Wonderful thing, the gift of sight. And yet, sadly, because of sin, our eyes can also be used as instruments of sinful things as well. There are means whereby sinful desires enter the sight of our flesh. And desires take root and they grow into sinful action, as James explains it. I mean, th think about it. This is one example, although we could mention many people in the Bible. But how did Achan fall into sin? In Joshua 7, he confesses that he saw a Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, and he coveted them and he took them. 
sinful action begins with a look, with our eyes gazing upon what we do not have, which quickly becomes, why don't I have it? Which becomes, I deserve it. And then there's the pride of life. And this refers to the arrogance in us that assumes that we can decide and direct our lives apart from God. There's some of that in all of us as well. Something we need to be fighting against. It's worldly. The sinful nature presumes to determine what is best for us. How much is enough. How high up the ladder we should go. And what we should enjoy. Our sinful nature presumes to determine these things for us. Left to ourselves... We would assume to be masters of our own destiny. We would want to chart our own course. We would want to make our own way. Think about this. What is the rallying cry of the world today? Believe in yourself. Isn't it? Believe in yourself. If you can dream it, you can do it. You have it in you. All you need to do is believe in yourself and you can make whatever you want happen. That's the sinful desire that John here is talking about. But again, beloved of God, that's the way of the world. And we are no longer of the world. We are, and we are not to, to live like that anymore. Following the ways of the vain philosophies of this world. And you know what? We have to say, good. It's good that we don't have to follow the ways of the world. Because the world, John reminds us here, is passing away. It has no permanence. And no wonder. Again, John writes in, um, in chapter 5, verse 19 of his letter, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. The devil is the prince of this world. And what is the destiny of the devil? The lake of fire. For lo, his doom is sure, we sing. And if that is the fate of the devil... What of those who follow him? They'll be served up the same sentence. Their destiny is destruction. Their laughter will turn into weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. They will go out to the place where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. This world as we know it is heading toward that. It's surely and progressively moving toward that day. And so we are not to follow the ways of the world because of its impermanence. That's part of our motivation, we might say. And you see, we need to be reminded of this. We need to hear this again today, even as God's people, because the temptation will always be with us to stop and stall and stare, almost a window shop, at the world and its amusements. But here's the thing, if we steer too long, and if we don't remember what we are taught in Holy Scripture, if we steer too long, we'll be like that deer in the headlights of the oncoming semi. We will get lost in the glare and be oblivious to the disaster barreling down upon us. And so let us not be enthralled with the world. It's passing away, it's impermanent. But as Christ calls us, his children, to continue in obedience, we want to see in the second place that we're to do so because of the permanent effects 
of our obedience. And we're drawing here on the words of John in our text when he says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, a contrast is drawn between what is permanent and what is impermanent. What will endure and what will not. The world will not abide. Those who do the will of God will. Now, when John speaks of abiding forever, he's talking about eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. While the world is passing away, we as believers may be assured that we will enjoy enduring fellowship with God all eternity. John 3.16 again says it this way, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, shall not perish, that is, as the people of the world will, but have everlasting life. The Bible teaches that there are wonderful things that await us beyond this life, beyond this world as we know it, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation paints a picture of unimaginable beauty, not things that have to be taken literally necessarily, but it, it paints this, these pictures of, of, of unimaginable beauty, gates of pearl and streets of gold. And we read of a time when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There, will be, there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, for the former things will have passed away. And joy of joys, the greatest joy of all, is that we will be with our Lord forever, reconciled and at peace with Him, loving Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength forever and ever, with the total absence of sin which hinders us now. All this is the inheritance of those who will abide forever. But you know, if there is this wonderful place that Christ is preparing for us, then we have to ask, how can we know that we will get there? Can we be sure? Yes, we can. John tells us, he who does the will of God abides forever. This echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21, when he said, he who does the will of my Father in heaven shall enter the kingdom. And, and we have to understand what, when words like kingdom, eternal life, Forever, heaven, when these words are used, they're quite often synonymous with, with each other, biblically speaking at least. But to get to the forever, to get to heaven, to get to God's kingdom, eternal kingdom, we must be doing the will of God. And so the next question is, what is the will of God? Well, it's not a subject that we can exhaust on a morning such as this, as a matter of fact, it's not a subject I think we could ever exhaust. But we'll mention a couple of things, the two most important things. And the first and foremost thing, if we are striving to do the will of God, is that we must believe in Jesus. That's the first and foremost thing, the primary thing for us. We must believe in Jesus. Listen to what John says or recording the words of Jesus in John 6, verse 40. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. And so, to believe in Jesus is of the utmost importance. 
Everything else flows from faith in him. But we must believe that Jesus is the, the beloved son of God and the savior of sinners, that he is the promised Messiah, the anointed servant of God. But Jesus was asked in John 6, 28, in fact, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What was his reply? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus called them to believe in him. The greatest work of faith is that we have faith in Christ. We must be willing to forsake all things and follow Jesus. And so how can we know that we will abide if we believe in Jesus? That's the first and foremost, the primary thing we must know. And if we truly believe in Jesus, then this will begin to show itself in our walk and our attitude. And we will begin to do God's will. That is, we will begin to strive to keep God's commandments. In 1 John 2 verse 3, John writes this, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. And so the, the evidence, we might say, that we know Christ, is that we are striving to keep His commandments. We show that he, we are His as we begin to walk in His law. We evidence our allegiance to Him as we begin to deny ourselves and fight against sin and strive to obey His will. I like how our Heidelberg Catechism puts it really well in Lord's Day 33. And it says the same thing. And that's why we speak of the Catechism as faithful summaries of Scripture. But it explains it this way. It says the same thing that John is saying here, Lord's Day 33. It explains that true conversion is seen in a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. That's a perfect summary of what John teaches us here. And so our conversion is shown by our obedience. And as we see that obedience, we may grow in confidence that we will abide. Now, let's quickly say that this is not to suggest that we can do this on our own. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, must enable us to both see and do what pleases God. Apart from the vine, we can do nothing. Neither is this to suggest in any way that by our good works we can attain eternal life. Of course not. Salvation is always all of grace. It's always a gift from God. What we're saying is that as we walk in obedience and as we see ourselves beginning to strive to do the will of God, it gives us a certain amount of assurance that we truly belong to Him. It's evidence that we truly have... have uh, switched gears, we've repented and gone in a different direction, now following Christ, not the world. It gives us that assurance that God's Holy Spirit now lives in our hearts and that we will endure while the world is treaded in the winepress of God's wrath. The earth, it's, the earth itself will be renewed God's people will be glorified, but all that sets itself in opposition to God and His Christ is doomed. And boys and girls, remember how we defined world as all that exists that lives in rebellion against God and His Christ? Even now, it's passing away. And so let us be sure, if we can speak this way, let us be sure that we have hitched our wagon to the right horse. 
Let us hear this warning again. In this first worship service of 2021, the world is passing away. To anchor ourselves to this world then would be quite foolish. As foolish as thinking that those who died on the Titanic would have bought tickets if they had known that it would sink. As foolish as buying stock in a company that we know is going to go out of business. Or turning down a road with a sign that says very clearly, no exit, road ends. This world will pass away. It is passing away. History as we know it will one day come to an abrupt end. And though the dawn of a new year means many things to us, a fresh start, new challenges, the excitement of things to come, we must also realize as God's people that 2021 also brings us closer to the glorious inevitable, the great day of the Lord. The good news is that we as Christians don't have to fear that day. In fact, we look forward to it. As those who desire that our Heavenly Father be glorified, that the church will be vindicated, as we who desire that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we rejoice that that day is coming and that this world is passing away. Amen.